But for salvation to take place, what has to happen? We have to accept him in order for him to save us. It's not just having knowledge about him, but it is receiving him and growing in him. Salvation is one of the reasons for which he came. That he might reconcile us to the Father. But he also came for a much deeper purpose. And we're going to bring that out. For that we can understand that these other three are not really optional. They're just factual, and they are. Yes, factually, he is our Savior. But in order for salvation to take place, we have to respond to him as a Savior. The other three, we don't have to respond, but he is. He is. Whether we respond to it or not, he is. The general conception which the rabbis in Israel formed of the Messiah is different from what was presented by Jesus himself as the Messiah. Their view is that he was coming to restore the kingdom of Israel. And that could have been the furthest view from Jesus' mind. And even to a point that he somewhat separates himself from the hierarchy or the priesthood that has somehow formed that theology or those thoughts of that day. The purpose of Jesus' coming is to have God speak individually concerning his relationship with humanity. There was not going to be a third party now. There was not going to be a Moses. There there wasn't going to be a Joshua. There wasn't going to be an Ezra. There, There wasn't going to be an Ezekiel or a Jeremiah or a Micah. God's going to come and speak himself in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. He's going to come and he's going to speak to his creation. And he's going to share with his creation this relationship that he so desired to have with us. Could have God put forth a plan of saving us without Christ dying? Yes, he could have. And oftentimes we forget. God can basically do whatever he wants to do other than lie or deny himself. But in bringing Christ forth, he's going to show who he really is and who he is himself in the person of Christ. To present the fundamentals of the Christian life. God was not going to allow somebody else come now 
in a sense, and sit down and teach you. He comes personally to teach. What he desires of our lives, where that we're not guessing about, is this pleasing to God, or does God want me to do this, or if God wants me to do that, look at Jesus' life and you'll see what God wants you to do. It is to present the fundamentals of Christian life and the final relationship view of God towards humanity and humanity towards God. How God feels about us and wants to present himself to us and then he's going to teach us how he wants us to reverence him and see him and how we are to present ourselves to him. And he comes in a personal fashion in human flesh born as a baby as a human being to teach us and to express his ways to us. One of the first things that he really wants to get across to us that I think sometimes we wind up missing. And Jesus fulfills these two things. And he teaches us this. Well, Jesus said, I come to do the will of my Father. Jesus shows us he's always talking to his Father. Jesus puts himself in the secondary position and his Father in the primary position by doing his Father's will and being obedient even unto death. That God himself in Jesus' life as a human being comes first. So he expresses this by the word Father. When we look at Matthew 6 real quick here, just count the times that he keeps saying, Your Father, Your Father, Your Father. Even when he gets to the place of the Lord's Prayer, in a sense, which the Lord's Prayer would originally be in 17, not in chapter 6. He says, our Father. Our Father. But what he's trying to get across now is this relationship of where we see in Romans 8 where we cry out, Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy, however you want to term that Greek word there, that whole thing is endearment. Endearment. So when you look in chapter 6, boy, In that very first verse, in verse 1, he says, If you do, you will have no rewards from your father. But what I want you to catch is the word, your father, in that verse 1. Your father. And then, as he comes on down, just a little bit further, he says it again in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father, who is unseen, then your father. And he wants that relationship to be built. Why? 
Something we've lost in the reality of life. Children should always look to who? Who should always be there that they can be dependent upon? Father. Boy, it's there. And he says, Father. He wants us to be dependent upon our Father. He wants us to acknowledge our Father. The issue of Father here is knowing that you are not responsible for who? For self, in a sense, but it is the Father who is totally responsible for you. But you have to put yourself in the hands of the Father, allowing Him to be responsible for you. And he goes on just a little further. Even in the prayer he says, And this is how you should pray. Our Father. The whole thing again. Our Father. When you get down in verse 15. But if you do not forgive them their sin. Your Father. And he keeps on right on down through. And the whole process is, Your Father. Then when you get over into verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, reap, or store away in bonds. And yet, your Father, your Heavenly Father, feeds them, cares for them, takes care of them, meet all their needs. And what he's trying to emphasize is this word, Father, relationship. And Jesus comes to show us this relationship between humanity and our Heavenly Father. And then he brings in the other word called servant. Catch this picture. Everything in heaven, every angel created, every person created who is under God, is a servant to God. Nobody grows up to be his equal. Nobody grows up to be called God in a sense. Nobody grows to a point as a father and son moves because in that family structure we move from the being the child to the adult. And on that adult level, even mom, daughters, father, sons, we have to deal with each other how? From adult to adult, no longer adult to the child, but now we're dealing with each other as two adults. Well, with God, there's no other adult in the house. He is the father. He's the father. And Jesus comes to show us that relationship that he is the Father. And he wants us to engage in that relationship. But understanding this, we are the servant. We are the servant. We serve him. And Jesus became a servant 
to the Father and to man. To both. He took on that form of humanity that he might serve his Father and humanity. And he's shown and he demonstrates that to us. That here is what God wants in this relationship. The Father. Now, our earthly fathers always want respect. But oftentimes we don't live in order to earn that respect. We want to be pictured as somebody special. But sometimes we don't live that way to, rele- to receive that which is special. We don't father like we should. But God never misses a beat. He never misses a beat. He never runs away from us. He never abandons us. He's always there. And we have a difficulty sometime between this earthly father and this heavenly father in seeing them clearly and understanding our heavenly father is not like our earthly fathers. Go to Philippians 2 with me real quick. Down into that verse 6. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a what? Of a servant. Of a servant. And sometime in Christianity, we twist that thing around. We make God the servant and we are what? The God. Be careful how you speak to God. Be careful how you are going to command God. But understand, you can come to him as your heavenly father and ask him anything. And it says, he became a servant, being made in human likeness. He became this servant. Now, Understanding Jesus is that heir of his coming. He joins together also two other ideals. The son and the servant. The son and the servant. Children need to understand Servanthood. And oftentimes we, won't, we don't want to do that because we think we're mistreating our children. And we do want them to have it somewhat better than we had. We have all these false ideals sometimes. But don't miss this. God intends for you to teach your children about servanthood because throughout life, that's what they're going to be doing. Now, there's only two things about this. Either you freefully and joyfully know how to be a servant 
or you're one who only knows how to be waited upon. That's all. You only know how to make your request and what you want and what you like. But you do not learn how to serve. That's part of the biggest problems in Christianity today. Is that the church waits upon God to serve us rather than us serving him. And being a servant is something that has to be taught. And Jesus came to teach us how to be servants. And he came to teach us how to be sons and daughters of the Most High God and be his servant while we are yet his son or his daughter. All of my children learn how to serve me by simple little things. Go wash out the bathtub. You can wash out your own bathtub. Go wash out my bathtub. Go get my house shoes. Go do this for me. Go upstairs and get my robe. What does it teach us? You may be doing something that you are fully enjoying at the moment. But because I asked you to do it, you stop your moment of enjoyment and go do it. As you grow up, people are going to intersect your life in the moment of your joy and ask you to go do something. You have two things. You can do it with a smile. You can do it because, boy, it's a gesture of kindness. You can do it because maybe they're too old to go get it themselves. Maybe they have hard times with the steps and the knees don't bend like they used to. There's many different reasons, but the main reason is that they asked you to do it and you do it joyfully or you can do it in your anger. And when you do it in your anger, what you begin to do is challenge what you say when you say you love somebody. Because when you love somebody... You don't mind serving them. But when you get angry because somebody asked you to perform or to do, that's a little area of your own selfishness that becomes and that is able to be seen and is out there. And that's the part of life that has to be dealt with. If you're really going to be a servant of the Most High God and the sons and daughters of the Most High God because God steps into your life and he asks you to perform something that interrupts your life and may be very difficult. When God stepped into Mary's life and asked Mary to be the vessel that would bring forth his son into the world, Could you imagine all the inconveniences at that moment that took place in Mary's life? The rejection that Mary felt from her friends? The gossip that Mary had to endure about being pregnant and yet not married? Could you 
imagine all the misunderstanding that Mary went through and even trying to explain what had taken place and then the feelings of Joseph this is my wife we already have the contract we have the the covenant we have it all but God came in and did this now see how gracious God is is when he sends his angel to explain to both of them And even for Joseph, the understanding, the inconvenience, closing his shop and going to Egypt, going to Egypt, starting a business up, and then a couple years later, shut that business down and go back home to Nazareth. Learning to be a son under obedience is learning how to be a servant to the Most High God. We, as the servant of God, Jesus fulfills these three offices. With Samuel, we all know in the Old Testament, Samuel held these three offices that no other prophet held. It was the, he held the office of being a prophet, a priest, and a judge. Not a king, but a judge. A king judges, but a king also has final authority. Samuel didn't have that. So when Jesus comes, he comes to be this prophet, this priest, And this king. He comes to be this prophet because truth had been so distorted for over 400 years of silence and no prophet has been speaking on the behalf of God and there was no prophet coming on the scene. And I want you to understand something. There are two things that are similar but not the same and that's the apostle of the New Testament and the prophet of the Old Testament. Both of them spoke the word of God. The word apostles mean the sent one with the message of God. The prophet is one who is speaking the word of God. Very similar. But for 400 years, no prophet. 400 years, not hearing from God. 400 years of a priesthood that is corrupt. And in the church, there's so much corruption in this thing called the pastor or leaders of churches. My brother was showing me the eight most richest pastors in the United States. And the millions of dollars they make. What do I need with three airplanes as a pastor? What do I need with four or five homes? And three of the homes costing over a million points something. How many missionaries could we support? How many good works could we do for one of those homes?
He holds that position as prophet. When people do not receive truth, and this is what has been happening for some period of time now, when people do not, do not receive truth of God, word, they do not know how to live pleasing to God. God never asks you to think off the top of your head of how you are to please him. God gives you directions on how you can please him in this life. Then it becomes your will as the servant to do it. But when you do not receive truth and there's nobody there speaking God's word, At that point, you lose the ability to please God. Now, if you really want to see that happening, look what's happening in our own nation. Because we are losing the love for God's Word. Because we are losing the excitement of God's Word. And God's Word really having a meaning to us, and that is truth. We begin to stray away from it. Now, truth is always given as a light. Truth always gives people light. For the more truth you have, the more light you have on a subject. In the temple, there was a light that had to burn constantly. It burned to the north, it burned to the south, it burned to the west and the east from the window part of the temple. And what it was, it burned that all people, all nations might see the light of the living God. Therefore, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I come to be the light for men because the temple's light was fading because of what was going on. And the whole process comes back down to do we desire to know truth? And Jesus comes, according to John, to be the light of the world and the light of every man's life. Because from 400 years from the last prophet to when he comes, the truth of God was not really being heard. Now, during the Feast of Tabernacles, there were 70 bullocks that were sacrificed. Now understand, take this picture of the Jews. Because, in one sense, Israel was God's first son. Israel is God's desired chosen child. To be his servant. And he starts that priesthood. And the high priest. We're going to look at Christ in a moment about being the high priest. But the whole process is that they were to be a people who were an example to all people. And God incorporated that in the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would sacrifice 70 bullocks for all nations. 
Why? They were the priesthood of God who intervened for all humanity with the sacrifice that they performed. Now let's draw that a little bit closer to home. You are today the priesthood of God who makes sacrifice for who? For all the nations. You are the priesthood that serves God and serves man. But because we didn't know how to do that, Jesus comes and shows us how to be the prophet that speaks truth and then serves. Without truth, no one knows how to serve. Without truth, we cannot please God. Without truth, we cannot even function as a true priesthood. And when the priesthood of the Israelites, and we see it with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they lost sight of God's truth and begin to write all their own little laws and so forth, they begin to lose sight of the living God. The priest of Israel was without a true priesthood. Israel was without a true priesthood. The priest that would serve God and people. And this is dangerous. As priests, we are to serve God and man, not ourselves. Not ourselves. That's why Jesus goes into that whole little area about a seed that falls to the ground and dies because one of the things about the priesthood at that time, they didn't die to themselves. So the priests were more of the wealthier group of Jewish individuals. And we have to be careful with that because the priesthood is to be a mediation between God and humanity. That much of our prayer is not just about who? Ourselves, but it's about what? The people who are lost. Our family members. And we need to understand, without prayer, there's no deliverance. Without prayer, there's no rescue. Without prayer, there's no sanctification. Without prayer, there's no salvation. Without prayer, people do not enjoy the benefits of all that God has for them because somebody's interceding for them in prayer to really know the depth of the God that they say they believe in. Go to Hebrews 4.10. And you begin to see something. From Hebrews chapter 4 through 10, you hear this name, high priest or great high priest. In chapter 4, 14 and 15 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we, prof- we profess. For we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. He didn't come to just save us. He come to teach us. And I want to be careful with this. That we can be faithful to God without sin. Does that mean I won't never have a sinful thought? No. Does that mean that I won't never lie? No. But the moment I do it, I recognize it, I what? I confess it. He brings my sin before me that I can confess it quickly. And then he comes that sin might not have dominance over me, that sin will not rule over me, sin will not rule my life. Sin will not rule my life. He come for that purpose. Why? He's going to be king over my life. He wants to rule my life, not the dominance of sin. He come. Yet without sin. He's without sin. Now, catch this principle, because it's vital here. I am a sinner. I sin when I don't serve Elaine properly. I sin when I say the wrong thing to her. I sin when I don't properly guide or talk with my children. I sin when I don't treat you like brothers and sisters in the Lord. I sin when I think there's somebody beneath me who's not as good as I am. I sin. And God has to quicken those things to me. And I have to confess those things. Which allows me then to be his servant. If you have a ton of sin, you couldn't serve God if you wanted to. Until you dealt with what? The sin. And when you deal with the sin and you have a heart to deal with yourself, then you will learn how to be a son and a daughter before God and a servant before God. But if you don't deal with the sin which he come to deal with, that sin would not have dominion over you. You'll never really be a servant of God, used by God. But when you deal with that sin immediately and you confess it, you're the son, you're the daughter, you're the servant that God says, look at him, look at her. This is your assignment. Go do this. Go do that. And God uses you.
God uses you. And you learn how to be the son and the servant that Jesus demonstrates for us. When you go over to chapter uh, 7, 23 through 26, look what he says in 7. Because, again, he's calling out this most high God. Now, there has been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. What stopped them from continuing? Death. And he says, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. It's an ongoing priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to what? Intercede for them. He came that he might intercede for us. He didn't come just to be that baby in the manger. He didn't come just to be our Savior. He came to intercede for us because he knows Gus Brown is going to be like Joseph, going to have trouble all my days of life, and I need someone to intercede for me. This morning I was praying for Ken. And we read Life of Mary and when Gabriel came and I told him, this is Christmas time, Ken. And I want you to know, Christ, he came to be your Savior. And that word Savior means to deliver you from whatever situation you find yourself in. And God has come to deliver you and give you life. And God is working a miracle in your body. God's giving you life. But we breathe and we move and we have life in Christ Jesus. He's your life kin. Though the outside look like it's perishing. Yet that inner man is being renewed day by day. And I challenged him, Ken, you're not responding to me. But God is speaking to you. And you can respond to him. And my intercession was, God, speak to Ken while his head is upon this pillow. Speak to him, Lord, in this state. And may you and Ken have some exciting conversations that when Ken wakes up, I can hear what you two talked about. (laughs) Interceding. Priesthood. Christ interceding for us. We're interceding for other people. Then 9-11, he simply says, When Christ came, catch that word came in there. When Christ came, he came as what? Can you imagine a baby, a newborn, being a high priest? But it says when he came, he was already what? High priest. He was waiting to be high priest. When he came, he was high priest. And he was ready to intercede for us immediately. 
Remember that time when his parents were looking for him? At a very early age, where did they find him at? In the temple. About his father's what? And what was he doing? Interceding with man and their thoughts. And they said they never heard, even as a youngster, of someone who speaks with such authority. And yet he grew in wisdom and knowledge with man. But yet he was sharing that. And they recognized, even at that young age, there's something different about this boy. But look where he was at, even at a very young age. And he says, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. That is, not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood and of goats and calves, but he entered the most high place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctified them so that they are outwardly clean. Let me stop there for a moment. In our religiousity, in our religious knowledge, in our religious doing sometime, it can be perceived that we are outwardly cleaned, but what's our real heart and mind? We can look clean on the outside. Boy, we can spray our deodorant on and everything on, and we can smell good to man, but how do we really smell to God? Are we a sweet Savior unto God? God doesn't look at our outer appearance. He looks where at in our hearts. What is God seeing in our lives as he looks upon us? We can't hide it from him. We can't put a veil over it and keep it from him. Because I don't speak it doesn't mean he don't know it. He knows me in and out. He knows the real me. And he desires to make intercession for us. And he desires to be that great high priest for each and every one of us. He came to be that. He came to be that. Now understand this principle also. Without a godly priest, true servants of God, the world and people suffer. Without true priesthood the world suffers and you can see that in Israel if you just study the priesthood and begin to see that the priest was no longer even chosen among Jews (laughs) was no longer put in place by Jews but by Rome 
It became a bidding thing. Who could offer Rome the most money for the position of high priest? Without a godly priesthood, what God calls us in Peter, that you are my royal priesthood, and without us serving as the priests of this world, this world suffers. But when we serve, and we are the servants of the Most High God, and we are the priests of God, serving Him and humanity, the world is being blessed. It makes a difference. Melvin was sharing something in Sunday school, and he was saying, you don't only just witness to non-believers, but you also witness to who? Believers. Let me share something with you of what he was sharing. If you're in that word, and you're learning the word, even when you're with somebody who says they're a Christian, but they have no hope because they do not have the word of God in them. When you're with Christians who don't have direction for their life and seem stuck and depressed and wandered in the wilderness, they're not in the word of God. They're not looking for God to give direction and and to encourage. They don't know that, boy, that the joy of the Lord is their strength. They don't know those things. They don't understand that God is able to lift them out of the mire and clay and put their feet on a solid foundation. They don't understand that. Why? They're not in the Word of God. And when you're not laboring, when you're not working at understanding God's Word, even though you are a Christian, You have nothing in there that's feeding your spirit. But when you start feeding your spirit, you'll be different. When you get into the word of God and let him begin to direct you, and you want his direction, let me share something with you. Don't read the Bible out of duty. Learn to read it out of love. That I want the one who loves me above anyone else to speak to my heart. The one who cares for me more than anybody else to speak to me and care for me. That you're doing it because you want to express your love to him. And allow him to express his love back to you. When I was in Vietnam, Elaine sent them letters. I read those letters over and over and over and over again. I might read the same letter three or four or five times before I get the next one. Because it connected us. It connected us. That word of God connects you with him. And it connects him with you.
And Jesus came. And it says that he came with grace and truth. Because the priest has to be able to speak the truth of God to the people. And when the truth of God is being spoken to the people and the people receive it, the people are blessed and the people prosper. The people were without God because the priesthood was without God. And there's a lot of pulpits today where God does not speak from the pulpit. Know your word. Know your Bible. For that when you go into a church and the person is not speaking from the word of God, that you know what you may need to do. They were without God because of their willingness to forsake God. And the world suffered because of his willingness not to obey God. The true priest, no true priest, this is what happened. We lose teaching or the law of God. We lose the teaching of God's word. We lose a relationship. You cannot have a true, expiring, enriched, growing relationship with God and never open his word. It won't happen. That's like Elaine and I getting married and I put her in a house, an apartment, and I go off for the next 15 years and tell everybody, oh, that's my wife back over there. That's not happening. She might be my wife on some paper. She might be my wife uh, in my head. But in reality, I'm not her husband, nor is she really my wife. And that's what we do with Christ. We accept him. But he lives up there. We live down here. But we never live together. And the purpose of Christ's coming is that we would live together. Whether here on earth or in heaven. Him and I, we live together constantly. He's in my life constantly. He's part of me. Constantly. I'm not waiting to get to heaven to be sanctified, holy, godly, whatever you That's happening when? Now. Now. But without the word, you lose a relationship with God. We lose that relationship. We lose his blessings and the experience. And then what takes place is the suffering of humanity when we lose God's word. We lose the love of God. Without getting into his word, we lose a love for him, a closeness to him, a desire for him. If we're not in that word, Now understand this because it's so important. If God tells me to learn about Elaine 
and have knowledge of Elaine. He's telling me that in order that the relationship might what? Grow. The man studies his wife, learns his wife, knows her emotional swings. May not understand them all, but he knows them. And he's patient with her. That's gathering knowledge about her. That he might know how to love her. God gives us knowledge of himself. That we might know how to love him. And in the deeper knowledge I gather of him. The more I love him. The more I know of him, the more I love him. The more I understand what all he's done for me and what he has laid to the side of my inheritance, of what I am in him, the more I love him. That love and knowledge goes together because love is always a growing thing. Not something you fall out of, but it's a growing. But the growing comes in on the issue of the knowledge that you gather of the other. And without the prophet and the priest, all you have is the teaching of rules by men. That's what you're left with. Without the prophet, without the priest. The last one, the, he come to be our king. It is strange because in Matthew 2.2, 2, the Magi's come and they come with this statement. We're in search of the king of the Jews. They come already acknowledging him as being what? A king. A king. And they're looking for this king of the Jews, not knowing that he's the king of every man, of every nation. But they have this small knowledge that yes, he is coming to be the king of the Jews. But just think what happens when that knowledge expands, that he's not just the king of the Jews, he's the king Of all. What a difference it makes. To understand that he really is the king of all. And then when Pilate asked Jesus. Are you a king? In one book I believe it's in Luke. He said are you asking for yourself? Or are you asking because that's what the Jews told you I am. But in John. He does answer and he tells Pilate. As you have said, I'm a king. But see, at this moment of time, in a sense, they're facing. This is not my kingdom. My kingdom is there. But guess what? I'm invading this kingdom. I'm invading this kingdom. That's why I come to die for this kingdom. I'm taking over this kingdom. Hey. 
Go to Revelations 14, 17, and we'll close with this. 17. They will make war against the Lamb. What does John call him? The Lamb of God. But the Lamb will overcome them because he is. Not that he has become. But he is already. When he was in that manger, he is. When he first came out of that womb of Mary, he is. He wasn't becoming. He is. He is the prophet of God. And Hebrew says he's the last one that would speak an authentic word of God, an authoritative word of God. He's the last one. He is that prophet of God. When he came from that womb, he's already the priest, the great high priest of God. And when he came forth from that womb, he already is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He wasn't becoming, he is. He is. He is. He is.